Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea at the time when Jesus was on trial. And Pilate was trying to decide who Jesus was and what he should really do about it. And during the interrogation, Jesus told Pilate these words. It's in John chapter 18, verse 38. The reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? He also asked Jesus, where do you come from? Are you the king of the Jews? So again, as we think about this whole series of questions that we ask God or that we ask of Jesus, and questions then in return that he asks us, uh, today I want us to think about a final question that Pilate asked, and it really wasn't directed at Jesus, but it was directed to the crowd. When he got tired of interrogating Jesus, he took Jesus out and they stood before the crowd and Pilate looked at the crowd and in Matthew 27, 22, he asked this question, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? I'm sure he didn't realize it at the time when he was asking the crowd the question that day, but the question that he asked is really a question that all of us need to face in our life. What will we do with Jesus, the Messiah? We can't wash our hands of it like Pilate did. We need to make that choice. If we have been confronted with, told about the message of Christ, or we've encountered somehow his presence through his Holy Spirit or through him working through someone, we really need to make that decision and answer that question. What am I going to do with Jesus? You see, there's really no way around it. If we don't answer the question, that is an answer. And if we try to avoid answering the question, we've actually made a decision to reject Jesus and not to think about him anymore. C.S. Lewis was a famous author, and he was a skeptic to the Christian faith. And it's interesting if you want to read a little bit about his history and, and his story. But as, as he contemplated this whole thing about Jesus, the whole story of Jesus' life, he came to the realization of basically these four things. Either Jesus is just a legend, or he was a lunatic, or he was a liar, he was a deceiver, or he actually was who he claimed to be, and that would make him the Lord. And as we think about this, let's just talk about that. To say that Jesus was a legend means that uh, the historical, the true historical Jesus that actually lived and uh, moved about during that time over the years, his story has become embellished, and his followers wanted to make him out more than what he was, so they began to say things like, yes, he claimed he was God, and then they began to make up stories about how he healed people and miracles that he had done. And so over time, Jesus has just become basically like a legend, like a fairy tale that we can read about in the Bible. Now, that is one option that we're faced with. Do, is that what we really think? 
Well, C.S. Lewis, as I said, was uh, an author, and he was a skeptic, but as he thought through the process, this is what he wrote about uh, Jesus being a legend, and this is in his own words. He writes this, Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow this to be so. And when you think about it, some people point out, well, there's some discrepancies in the four Gospels. Like certain accounts, they don't seem to line up just exactly the same way. And therefore, they say, well, that discredits the Bible. I would actually bring the argument that that actually proves they are historical accounts because they didn't try to doctor it up. They didn't try to make everything be congruent. They let the historical account stand as it was by those who were recording what had happened or collecting data about what what had happened and then writing it down for future generations. It would be the same thing today as if as you're leaving church today, there's an accident. I pray there's not, but if there's an accident out here as you're pulling down uh, Hollywood Drive or you're going out on 339 and there's a collision and there's some people that are behind watching this happen, there's some people that were coming on 339 or again down Schoolhouse Road or wherever the accident happened, everybody is going to see it from a different perspective. And so as each of them talk about what they saw and what they experienced, you would naturally understand that there's going to be discrepancies because you've got the the different viewpoints, the different things going on. That actually lends to the credibility. Again, legends don't do that. Legends develop a story. They develop a whole timeline. They want to make sure everything is congruent so that the story is absolutely believable. So we can discount the fact that Jesus was a legend. In fact, another thing that really discounts it is all of the lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ out, down throughout history, literal life change for the better for people that have followed Jesus. Legends don't do that. I don't know how many people have said, you know, I've read every series of Superman and it has changed my life. <laughs> you know, so again, it's, it's not a legend. It's not something that he is real. And so we can discount the legend theory. So then that leaves uh, the other things then. Was Jesus a lunatic? Because Jesus absolutely did claim to be God. There are some who say, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. His followers just said he claimed to be God. Well, now again, if we look at the historical accounts, Jesus did this in different ways. Here's one account in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. Philip, one of his closest followers was having a conversation, and this is what he said. Lord, show us the Father, talking about God. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you so long a time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, make no mistake about it. Jesus was equating himself with God. In fact, even the way he said it, you know, Philip's like, just show us, show us God, and Lord, that'll be enough. And Jesus says, really? Really, Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you still don't recognize me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, let's think about it. If he claimed to be God, and he really thought he was, but he was not, 
that would make him a lunatic. Or in other words, he was mentally unstable. He had this false recognition of who he was and everybody else knew it. Now, you might say, well, that sounds silly. And by the way, people will not follow a lunatic or somebody that is mentally unstable. So let me just give you an example of that. If I, today, would make an announcement, I've been with you all for a long time now and you've been hearing a lot about uh, unidentified flying objects. Well, I want you to know they're real. And actually, I arrived on one of them back about 64 years ago. And I've just been kind of on the down low, but today is the day I'm going to reveal that I'm an extraterrestrial. And I've come today to tell you about life on this other planet that we're all going to go and we're going to live on that planet and I want you to follow me and I'm going to take you to that planet. Come on, how many wants to follow me? Come on. Anybody? Any takers? I mean, you're all chuckling. Now imagine if I would do that week in and week out here at Porterfield as it's going out online and as uh, 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 I am speaking here, how many people do you think over time would end up attending this church? Well, we'd probably get a few actually. <laughs> But I'm saying, in, in reality, you all would be like, that guy is just, he's unstable, he can't be trusted, we're not, we're not following him. So you see what I'm saying? So Jesus then, if he claimed to be God, and he really thought he was God, but everybody else that was looking at him was like, mm, this isn't lining up, he would not have had any followers. He would, have not, he would not have had the impact that he had, both historically and even up to this time today. All right, so then we've eliminated that, hopefully. He wasn't a lunatic. Well, that means then, if he knew he was not God, and he claimed to be God, then he was a deceiver. He was a liar. And that means that he was basically like the devil. He was intentionally wanting to lead people astray. So here again, we see in John chapter 10, verses 30 through 39, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They even admitted that the work that Jesus was doing was good. He was healing people. He was helping people. He was doing what God would do. God loves us. He created us. He wants us to enjoy life. That's why he created it. And he wants us to be in relationship to him. And this is what Jesus was demonstrating because he would meet people's needs, he would heal them, he'd let them know he loved them, and then he would call them into relationship. And Jesus, again, every time he did this, he never really pointed to himself. I mean, he talked about himself, but he would always point to the Father, to God. He was pointing people to God, not away from God. And so, therefore, he was not being a deceiver. He was truly showing the credentials. He's saying, I'm showing you who I am, and I'm pointing to God the Father, and I want you uh, to understand that. I want your faith in God to grow, and God, I, I am God in the flesh, so I'm the way for you to follow God. Verse 37, Jesus even gives this argument. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. He's, he's saying, hey, I know I'm claiming to be God, so if I can't do the work of God, then don't believe in me. But if you're not going to believe what I say, at least believe what you're seeing me do. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
Here's another place just to follow along on that. So some of the religious leaders still weren't sure whether they could trust him or not. And so they actually accused him of being basically a devil or the devil in the flesh, the leader of devils. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 24 through 32. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So now they're saying even the works that he is doing, the good work that he's doing to heal people, they're saying the devil is the one that's behind all this. It's demonic power. And he is, he is a deceiver. He's leading people away. Sure, he could do that because he's the leader of all the demons, and that's why he can set, set people free from demonic activity. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Because you see, there were religious leaders in that day that were claiming authority, and they were driving out demons in God's name. And so Jesus was just challenging them, saying, well, if you're saying that, that, that I'm the devil because I'm driving them out, then how are you driving them out? Are you of the devil too? So then they will be your judges. And then Jesus said this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus wasn't leaving this alone. He was confronting them to say, you really need to think through your logic here and you need to understand that I am who I claim to be, and I'm showing you through all the credentials and every way possible. Basically, he was, he was confronting them with this fact, and this, this is something that we all need to deal with. Sometimes people don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe there's a God. They don't want to believe that there's someone they're accountable to that's higher than themselves or the government. They want to believe that they can just live life however they live, and then when they die, they die. But over and over again, we are taught by our Creator, and we don't have time to go into all this, but there is a lot of evidence and proof that God has given us that He exists. Number one, through nature. Number two, through the written Word of God that has withstood the test of time over generations, over attempts to snuff it out. The Bible was not written by one or two or a few authors that sat down together and claimed to be of God and wanted to make sure everything coordinated so they had a nice, even document. The Bible is actually a library of books and historical accounts of how God has worked in this world, primarily through the nation of Israel for, for several generations and centuries, and then even to today through Christ and through His church. So God has left evidence for us to believe in him. And I keep saying this. We all read texts that we get on our phone, but we won't read a text that God has sent us over generations and generations. It's called the Bible. That's why we refer to them as texts, because that's what they are. They're big, long texts, but they're good. And they're worth reading. So he's, he's left us an evidence of that. And then if that weren't enough, and we still didn't get it, he said, I'm going to enter into the world that I created. I'm going to come into the universe. I'm going to take on flesh and bone and blood. That's why it refers to Jesus as being born. He didn't start existing when he was born, but he was born into this world of the flesh, eternal God taking on flesh, coming into the world and walking among us so that we can know him. This is why Jesus said, I came to declare the truth, and anyone who's of the truth will listen to me. So sometimes we don't believe because we just don't want to. But what if we do believe, and yet we still have doubts? Because, okay, if Jesus wasn't a legend, and if he wasn't a liar, and if he wasn't a lunatic, then that only leaves one 
possible solution. He actually was Lord. He was God in the flesh. He is who he claims to be. And so then we're left with this question, what shall I do then with Jesus? Am I going to believe in him? And am I going to follow him? Or am I going to just reject him and say I don't want to believe it and I'm going to go my own way? So this leads us now into talking about doubts. What if I do believe, but then I have doubts? I have struggles. Well, I want to let you know that all of us have doubts and struggles about many things. It's part of life. We're experiencing this now with everything that we've gone through with the pandemic and all of the information that we've gotten out there. There's a lot of doubt still, even though we hear information that uh, is good. We're trying to sort through what's the good information, what's not information, what's information we still really feel like we haven't had or hasn't been brought to the surface enough, and it causes us to doubt. Well, it's the same way in our Christian faith. Sometimes as we're growing in our faith, these doubts come along. And I love the honesty and the authenticity of the Bible because, again, the Bible doesn't discount these. The Bible actually puts accounts of doubt of followers of Jesus in the Bible. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this, the, by the way, Matthew was written to help us believe and understand and know the truth of who Jesus is. But at the end of Matthew, this, this historical document that's saying, believe in Jesus, we've seen him, we know who he is, it says this in Matthew 28, 17, talking about some of Jesus' followers. When they saw him, talking about Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They're even recording that his own followers, even after they had seen him die on the cross and resurrected again and saw him before them, they still, it was like their minds couldn't grasp it and they still were like, can, can this really be? I mean, is this really him? They had doubts. Keep in mind that this was also before Jesus gave them the Great Commission. So he knew some of them had doubts and yet he said to them, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, or in other words, obey everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you until the end of the age. Here we are again, all these centuries, centuries past this time, here we are gathered in the name of Jesus on this little hillside in Porterfield, Ohio, and we saw a baptism this morning. And we've been seeing them. Jesus work continues in the world after all this time. He's true to his word. But again, sometimes we have doubts. Definition of doubt is uncertainty or a lack of confidence. So what do we need to do when we have these doubts? And that's what I want to spend really kind of the rest of this message on is, um, okay, I believe, but, but I still have these doubts, so what do I need to do with it? Well, a doubt, of course, is a crisis point. It's a decisive moment in the process of faith. And believe it or not, actually dealing with doubts is part of the process of maturing in your faith. So we shouldn't just ignore the doubts or try to explain them away. We need to learn how to handle them. And the way I look at it, maybe this isn't exactly right, but it helps me to kind of comprehend this thing. But God puts within each one of us a measure of faith. Now that I do know because the Bible tells us that. God has given to each of us a measure of faith. It's like a seed that he puts in every single one of us when we're born that gives us the ability to believe. And then it's just how are we going to exercise that faith and what are we going to put it in? So Jesus gives every single one of you and I a measure of faith. Well, as we hear about Christ and we begin to learn about that, that gives us an opportunity to put our faith in Christ. 
And as we do that, as that seed of faith is placed in Christ, and then that faith begins to grow, you can look at it kind of like a plant, but you could also look at it like a human being. When we are first born, we're very fragile, uh, and we rely on the help of others. But then as we begin to mature and we get into our childhood years, we can begin to do some things for ourselves. And that's kind of how faith, I think, grows in our mind and in our spirit. It starts out small and in an infancy stage, and we believe like, like Jesus even refers to a childlike faith, just a simple faith to trust. But then that faith gets challenged as we get older, and we, as, just like when our bodies start changing, we go through adolescence and all that fun stuff. Uh, we start rethinking everything at that point. You know, the hormones are going on, and it's like, what is going on with my body? And I'm having these feelings I've never had before. And so we go through those challenges in our adolescence physically. Well, I believe that happens with our faith. As we learn more about Christ, and yet we see problems in the world and our faith is challenged, we start kind of rethinking things like, well, what is this? What do I really believe? And why do I believe the way I believe? That is a natural process. And then finally, we get into faith's adulthood, where we've walked in faith for some time, and we feel pretty confident in our faith. But then what can happen is sometimes there can be a tragedy or an incident that happens in our lives that shakes our faith, that all of a sudden the expectancy that was there of how life would be has now changed, and now our faith is challenged, and so this also can bring doubts. So there's three basic ways that we can handle doubt. We can either dismiss it, we can suppress it, or we can process it. And the first option really is not a good option. You can just kind of dismiss it. In other words, well, this is just what I believe, and I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to go on, and I'm not going to question it, and that's the way it is. Now, that might seem like a good way to handle doubt, but actually what is happening is you're not really resolving the issues, and you haven't really worked it through to where you really understand why you believe what you believe, and you understand the challenges to it. So I really don't think it's a good idea to just ignore your doubt. I think there is a, a better way. The second thing is you can suppress your doubt. And that would be like you accept Christ, you come to church, you're around other believers, you have certain thoughts and you, you believe what they believe. And then over time, the, those, those uh, thoughts that you have are challenged. You start having doubts. But you know, if you talk about it to someone, ooh, they may think you're not a very good believer anymore. Or they may make fun of you. Or they may uh, challenge you say that you're not being a good Christian. And so therefore you just suppress those doubts and you're not actually dealing with them. And this again leaves the doubts unresolved. It's not good. So the third way, and I believe the best way to handle your doubts is to process them. Actually confront them, deal with them, talk about them, and come to a point of resolution. And uh, so there's actually an account in the Bible um, of John the Baptist. Now remember, this is the guy who proclaimed Jesus is the Son of God. He proclaimed that Jesus was Messiah. He said forgiveness of sins is in this man in Christ. And Jesus even had John the Baptist baptize him. And John said, Lord, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus said, no, I want you to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was doing that to show that he was identifying with John's message that he was truly Messiah and that John was from God and that he was from God. He also was showing that it was the beginning of his public ministry. And again, he was setting an example for us as, as followers of Christ and 
wanting to uh, serve him in the world. So water baptism is a, is a symbol of like that beginning of our public ministry, whatever that may be. So anyway, John was absolutely a believer, and yet he came to a point where he had some doubts. It's recorded in Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 28. And John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Stop and think about that. So John the Baptist was now rethinking things and he's like, I need to send a couple of my students to go to Jesus and, and ask him like, Jesus, did we get it wrong? Did, did I miss it somehow? Did, are, are, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? So let's look at it in verse uh, 20 there of Luke 7. When the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, Jesus cured many of the infirmities and afflictions and evil spirits, and to many he gave, uh, to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus wanted to reaffirm John the Baptist's faith. He, he didn't reject him. He didn't say, what are you guys talking about? I can't believe that John doesn't believe in me after all that I've done for him. And Jesus didn't do any of that. He loved John, and he wanted to reassure him that his doubts, though he had them, he wanted to dismiss them. He wanted to, to uh, disseminate them. He wanted to satisfy them. And so he, was, he did these miracles, and then he was reminding the students of John, as they went back to John, to say, remind John, this was the prophecy of Messiah, and this is what I'm doing. So again, it was a reassuring thing that Jesus was doing. And then on top of that, Jesus did not run John the Baptist down in front of other people, but he actually encouraged people about John the Baptist. He wanted them to understand, hey, doubts are part of life, but God is working through all this. So in verse 24, it says, when the messengers of John had departed, so they were starting to walk away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled live in luxury and are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. So listen now to how Jesus is building up John in front of others. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus was really affirming John the Baptist. He wanted John to know that. And I'm sure his, the, John's students, as they were leaving, they heard Jesus saying these words, even as they were heading on back to John. So Jesus was affirming John, saying there was no prophet greater than him, and yet he was also speaking a message to the crowd that day to say, if you put your faith in me, and you get your sins forgiven, and you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're greater than the greatest prophet here on earth because you're going to be in God's presence. You're going to be experiencing his glory for all eternity. So here's how we can process doubt. And I'm just going to go through these, through these real quickly. Number one, you need to seek answers. Get as much knowledge and understanding as possible. It's okay to ask questions. I would almost guarantee you that whatever doubt you're having uh, the question that you have regarding that doubt is, has been asked before. 
It's been asked by many people before because people are smart and throughout all these centuries we've asked a lot of questions about faith and about Christ and about all these things. But this is where a lot of people just give up because it's too much bother. But you really need to honestly uh, think about this because when you're honest with your doubts, that is actually showing that you do have a serious faith and you want your faith to grow. Another thing that you should not, <coughs> excuse me, not do is to isolate yourself. Don't keep it to yourself, and, and again, try not to just seclude yourself with these doubts because isolation will actually help the doubts to grow. What you need to do is surround yourself with other people that you can, again, seek information, ask questions, have discussions. Second thing we need to do is put our doubt in context. Ask yourself the question, why am I doubting? What's causing these doubts? Was it because there was something that happened to you that you didn't expect? That's what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he started out his ministry, he absolutely was uh, believing that as he followed Christ, Christ would bless him and he would have a high position with Christ. And yet, here he was arrested now and in prison because he had uh, ruffled the feathers of Herod, one of the Roman officials, and Herod had him arrested. So that's why John was like, did we get it wrong here, Jesus? I'm in jail. I didn't think things would turn out this way. So how about in your life? Maybe when you first accepted Christ or started following him, you thought there would be a different outcome, but it hasn't lived up to your expectation. It's not unusual for that to cause your doubts. So again, you need to ask yourself the question, do I really want to believe and trust or not? And then what evidence do I really have about Jesus? What's the personal experience you've had or the experience of others? This might sound like a silly thing to say, but another way to handle your doubts is to actually doubt your doubts. Why is it that we always doubt faith, but we don't doubt our doubts? So what I'm saying is maybe your doubt is, is totally unfounded, or maybe, again, it's not a doubt that uh, others haven't dealt with, so don't focus so much on that that it consumes you. So we need to kind of keep that in perspective as well and doubt your doubts. And then the, the final thing is feed your faith. Go where your faith is being nourished. Um, that's one of the benefits of being in fellowship and around other followers of Jesus because together we are seeking to understand Christ more, to serve him together, to address our doubts, to encourage each other, pray for each other. So we need to feed our minds on faith-building material. That's what the scripture says in Romans ten seventeen. It says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Or a simpler way to say it is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. James warns us in James chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, that if we don't resolve our doubts, we're going to be unstable. He says it this way, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 8, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So again, if you don't get that doubt resolved, it's going to cause you to struggle uh, in matters of faith and in life down the road. And again, we have to get that doubt resolved. To leave it unresolved is going to actually lean us more and more toward just doubting and giving up. So we have to have a commitment to feeding our faith. So let me give you this example. Um, it's, it's maybe not the greatest, but it's one I think we can all relate to. A lot of people are concerned about their diet and about their weight and all these things. That's why we see so many things, so many ads on TV and, and apps to help with our weight and our diet and all that stuff and exercise and being fit. So let's say we've heard all this, and we know that it's helped a lot of other people, and so we're like, okay, I'm going to try it. 
So for the day, you start cutting your calories, you starve yourself, you maybe only eat one meal, you do 30 minutes of exercise, you've weighed yourself in the morning, at the end of the day, you've done all that, you weigh yourself and you weigh the same. And you're like, well, this doesn't work. So what's the use? I'm just going to give up. Does anybody really? I mean, some do. Yes, they do. But we know how silly that is because it doesn't work because you just tried it for one day. You didn't stay with it. You weren't committed to it. But people who make a decision, they say, you know what? I'm going to be committed to this. I'm not sure if it's going to work for me. I know it's worked for others. But so I'm going to start watching my diet. I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to start eating some different foods. I'm going to cut out some stuff that I really, really like. But I know it's not helpful for me. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to start exercising more. So you start out and you just walk maybe 30 minutes three times a week. Or you exercise 15 minutes four times out of the week. And you do that, though, not just for that one week, but you do it over the course of time. And you notice at the end of the month, then when you weigh yourself and you compare your weight at the beginning of the month to now, it's like, oh, I've actually lost a few pounds. I think this might be working. And then you're encouraged to, again, feed your faith, so to speak, or you're doing the thing because you're committed to what you know is going to help you get in a better place. We will do that with our physical bodies. We do it with our finances. We do it with everything else. But doggone it, we do not do it with our spirituality. We get lazy with our spirituality. We try something. One, I went to church once. It didn't do anything for me. I'm not going back. I heard a sermon once. Well, it was okay, but you know. We have to be committed to faith. Feed faith. Doubt your doubts and feed your faith. And all of a sudden, you'll find over a period of time that, wow, your faith is growing. It is maturing. You'll be able to overcome those doubts. I went through a dark period of doubt as your pastor. I've shared this in the past. I'm not going to rehearse it all again. But I'm telling you, even as a person who thought I was really sound in the faith and, and pretty stable, uh, in 2005, after the fire affected the building, swept through the building, and our, our church facilities were destroyed. And then the house that we were living in, the parsonage, we needed to move to make way for the new building that was going to happen. And then in that same time, I'm like, okay, God, we can get through this. Then my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I found out it was going to be a year's worth of treatments with uh, surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. And at that point, I'm just like, God, what is going on? What, what have I done? Please show me. Because I, I totally did not think this is how ministry was going to be. And then I began to even doubt God. I was like, are you, are you for real? Like, is, is, this, is this all it is? is? Is this just a fantasy? Have I gotten myself all caught up into a fantasy? That literally was, and, and I'm telling you this as your pastor, and in fact, I was honest with our leadership back then and said, I'm not in a very good place right now. I'm probably not <laughs> fit to be your pastor right now. But again, I've shared this, what was wonderful about the church body was they said, Mark, what do you need? Take some time off. You know, we'll, we'll help you get through this. We're going to get through this. And this is what I love about God's church here at Porterfield. It doesn't revolve around a pastor. It doesn't revolve around one person. We all have responsibilities in leadership. We work together as teams, and God has gifted all of us. So this is what we want to continue to do moving forward as a church. But here's the thing. In my doubts, I did seek help from other people. I was honest about the struggles. And because of that, God helped me work through it. And I remember me basically coming to a time where I went through this process, just like I've shared with you today, of God, are, are you real? Are you Lord, liar, lunatic, or a legend? But when I processed it all through, I realized, Jesus, if you are not the Son of God, if you are not the way to heaven, 
because uh, I know all these other religions, they, they are just a bunch of people trying to make their way to God, work their way to heaven. They have all these different beliefs. Lord, you're the only one that says we can't do it. And so you're giving us the gift of eternal life through what you did for us. To me, in that moment, that was the only thing that made sense and seemed the most doable and the most reliable. And so in that moment, I said, Lord, if you're not, if you're not real, I've got nothing. So I guess I'll stick with you. Boy, what a great step of faith. How, what a great man of faith I was. I got no other option, so I guess I'll stick with you. But God takes that little seed of faith, and he honors it. And, and so I, I say that to encourage you in your life. If you're struggling in your faith, God knows that. He wants to reassure you. He wants to strengthen your faith, and he wants to dissolve your doubt. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to live a life of confidence. It took me a while, but God walked me through that process, and then I, the joy of my salvation returned, and I really felt his presence and his help. And I'm standing here today to give testimony to that. He'll help you work through your doubts. He is real. He loves you. He has answered so many prayers in my life, in the life of my family, and I'm so grateful. So commitment builds faith. Carelessness reinforces doubt. Um, I want to close with these couple of passages. So just letting you know, for those of you that are watching the clock. Um, Luke 7, 22. Uh, remember when John sent the people to Jesus, this is what Jesus said. He wanted to reassure John. Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So again, Jesus wanted to reassure John the Baptist's doubts. He wanted to dissipate them and reassure him to have faith. And then Thomas, one of his other close disciples, after Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to some of the disciples. And so when they told Thomas, Thomas didn't believe him. And Thomas said, unless I see him with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus appeared to Thomas because Jesus wanted Thomas's doubts to be dissipated. And he wanted to trust. He wanted him to trust him. So when Jesus appeared to him, it's in John 20, 27, then Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. See, God wants you to live a life of certainty and trust in him confidently. Um, and that is his attitude when we doubt. He encourages us. I remember even the man who had the son who couldn't be healed. He was afflicted of a demon, and it caused his son to uh, have uh, fits where he would fall into the fire and different things, and the disciples couldn't cast this demon out. And so when Jesus came to the man, the man said, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you please help my son? And Jesus said, if I can do anything? He said, all things are possible to those who believe. And then this was that man's honest prayer, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. That is one of the most honest prayers in the Bible. I love that because he was being honest about his doubt with the creator. He said, I, I do believe, but I, I got these doubts and, and I need help. Help me. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't walk away and say, sorry to be you. Uh, he healed that man's son. Be not faithless, but believing. So God loves you even in your doubts and he wants to reassure you I like the way that Dr. Lynn Anderson states it. He says this, every morning I roll out of bed. I make a conscious decision to trust God another day. And each day God gives me just enough faith, just as he gives each day enough sunlight. 
and I remain determined to cling to the one I cannot see, to follow a path I often do not understand, and to trust even if the whole world is caving in. Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus? And what I'm asking you today is what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the things that you've given us that give us enough evidence to believe. Help us to really think about why we doubt and to not just um, disregard the doubts, but help us, Lord, to deal with them, to process them. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the fellowship of other followers of you, Lord, in your church. Help us to encourage one another, pray for one another, build one another up, and help our doubts to dissipate and help our faith to be strengthened, that we can honor you. And what we will do with you is to receive you as Savior and follow you our whole life through. In your precious name, amen.